We're going to continue in our study on the book of Daniel. And we've uh, spent the last several weeks in Daniel, and um, first week was a very, I think, familiar, pretty familiar story for most of us about this idea when Daniel and his three buddies were part of a larger group that were taken captive, that Babylon had captured, um, Judah had captured Israel, and, and part of Nebuchadnezzar's process was he would take like the best of the best, the finest of the young men, um, and they would take them back and they would begin to indoctrinate them in the Babylonian culture, in their religion, in their food, their diet, all this kind of stuff, and, and raise them up to become part of his, um, his staff, part of his group, part of his governing group. And so David, or Daniel is one of these, these individuals that's, that's brought up. So we have that familiar story. And, um, and then last week we, we talked about, um, the last two weeks we've been working through the, the second chapter of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar has this, this dream. That he, Nebuchadnezzar is the king. He has this dream. It's unsettling. He's, he's losing sleep over it. And so he um, brings in his wise men, his, his magicians, his, all these group of guys that are supposed to be the best of the best. And, and, and mind you, Nebuchadnezzar, when he's king, about this, this beginning of chapter 2, it tells us that this is the third year of his reign. So he's been king for all of three years. In the midst of Babylon conquering Israel, Nebuchadnezzar's dad actually is the one, is the king, he's still alive. And Nebuchadnezzar is one of the, the lead generals. And um, he catches word during this takeover that his dad had passed and he's the new king. And so he comes back home. And so he's still pretty new. And, and, and part of this transition is he inherits a lot of his dad's staff. So all these wise men were the guys that led underneath his dad. And so this is a good opportunity for him to kind of test how wise these guys really are. And so he has this dream, and he calls them together, the, the top, his top aides. He calls them in and tells them, guys, I've had this dream, and it's unsettling. Um, I need you to tell me what the dream was and what it means. And this totally perplexes these uh, group of aides, these advisors. And, and so they, they try and to puff him up a little bit and tell him how great of a king he is and says, well, just tell us what the dream is and then we'll tell you what it means. And he refuses to do that to the point where he says, listen, you guys, if you can't tell me what the dream was and what it means, I'm going to kill all of you. And not just you, not just this group that's here in my office, but, but everyone who carries the name wise man, he's going to be killed. I'm going I'm to wipe the slate clean. And I'm going to take your homes I'm going to turn them into trash heaps. And so this is a pretty strong statement that the king makes, and, and he's not going to deviate from it. And so finally the guys tell him, I, we don't know what it is. Like, no king has ever asked anyone to do this before. This is above us. Like, our gods don't dwell with us, so we, don't, we, we can't tell you. This is knowledge above us. And, um, and so the king declares to have them all, all killed. And, and God had, God is a sovereign God. And we see this sovereignty all throughout the, the book of Daniel. Just like in the first chapter, God had created this, this close relationship between Daniel and the chief eunuch. Here he has created this relationship between Daniel and Arach, who was the, um, 
chief of the king's guard. He was the head executioner. He was, it was his job to go collect all these guys and make sure they were all executed, all, all killed. And he, he goes up to Daniel's house, and he's bringing Daniel to get executed. And Daniel stops and says, hey, what's the deal? What, why, why the urgency? What's, what's causing all of this to transpire? And so he explains a little bit to him, and, and he says, listen, you um, work out the, the, the ability for me to meet with the king, and I will tell him what his dream was and what it means. And that's pretty much where we left off last week. Now, um, this morning we're going to look at what the dream was and what it means, but, but before we turn to Daniel, or if you've already turned to Daniel, maybe keep your finger in it, and go to the last book of the Bible, the New Testament, Revelation. Um, you know, I, I, I will tell you that I, I, prophecy for me is, it's, it's, it's neat. I, I enjoy it. I, I, I think it's amazing. But I'm also going to be completely transparent and honest with you. It's, it's not in my comfort zone, okay? Like this isn't, you know how sometimes, you know, you have certain, we have wheelhouses in our occupations. When you do something, you do it really well. You know, you, you can, prophecy is not in Chad's wheelhouse, Okay. So we're going to muddle through this thing a little bit today. And I'm going to pray that God gives me grace and, and allows you guys to have grace upon me. But, um, but here's, because, you know, I was talking with Aunt, or, uh, Gavin this morning. You know, when you start talking about prophecy, you start trying to do your, you know, I'm trying to research some of this stuff. You know, there's a lot of wacky people when it gets to prophecy, right? Like, go home and Google prophecy on YouTube, and you'll see all sorts of like, wow. You know, I mean, there's a lot of goofy things. And, um, and so it makes it challenging. And, um, but this is, I was reading in my quiet time actually this morning. Uh, and I just want to draw attention to this in Revelation chapter 1, the very, very beginning, uh, verse 1. It, it starts, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. And I, I love verse 3. It says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Um, as we introduce the book of Daniel, I, I told you that, that if, if the book of Revelation is this lock, the book of Daniel is kind of the key to help open up the lock. And so this morning, we're going to get our first um, take of some, some biblical prophecy. And it won't be the last time we, we confront prophecy because we're going to see it several times throughout this book of Daniel. So turn back with me now to Daniel chapter 2. And I read the, those verses in Revelations to remind us that prophecy should not be something that we fear, but rather something that we embrace. The idea that we can grab a hold of knowing that this stuff is written and what we're going to read today takes place from about 605 B.C. And this prophecy continues today. And to know that God is so sovereign that he can give a king back in 600 B.C. a dream that is still going today to me is amazing. 
And so rather than get scared about prophecy, rather than get totally confused about prophecy, what I want us to do, what I'm hoping that we can do is, is kind of embrace some of this prophecy, learn from this prophecy, and see what it does to change our lives. So, um, so let's go ahead and we're going to read this passage. Today's passage is a little lengthy. We're going to read it, and then I'm going to um, pray, and then we're going to try and dig into it, all right? So Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 24, and we're going to read to the end of the to the chapter, so all the way to verse 49, okay? So here we go. Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said this to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Okay, so Daniel is going to Arioch, right? He's the one that's instigating this. And I love... Um, the way, verse 25, and we see Arioch's response. Verse 25 says, Then Arioch brought, to Daniel, then brought, Dan, brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the, Ju- the, the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. So notice who takes the credit. Arioch does, doesn't he? He goes to the king, and it's this way of boasting the king with great haste. He goes and tells him this. Okay, so verse 26 says, the king declared that Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, that's his new given Babylonian name, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. So if we pause there for a second, can you guys, I mean, again, Let's put ourselves in this position. Like you have young Daniel. Daniel's 19 years old, probably somewhere between 18 and maybe 20, 21. He's young. Okay, he's, he's standing before this powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar, who's made this declaration. Like if nobody can, can come up with what this dream is and what it means, you, I'm killing them all. And, and remember what the previous guys, advisors said. They're just like, hey, come on, t- just tell us what the dream means. Like nobody, nobody's ever asked anybody to do this before. It's not fair. It's not right. Okay, and so if, we're, if we think this, Nebuchadnezzar brings in Daniel. Daniel says, okay, you know, great king, you're asking. There's no wise men. Nobody can do this. And can you almost see, the way I picture, I can almost see Nebuchadnezzar's eyes beginning to roll. Like, I've heard this sob story before. Here's, a, here's some young guy that was just trying to buy some time. And here we go. He says in verse 28, he says, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. If you have your Bibles, I would underline that. What, what, a, what an amazing thought to ponder. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Like we could spend a whole Sunday morning just talking about that phrase in that verse, about a God who reveals mysteries. All throughout our lives, we will, we will encounter mysteries. We will encounter things that we have no idea. We have difficult decisions that we have to make, and we don't always know what the right decision is. Difficult spots in life where, where we begin to wonder um, when our health begins to crumble and we don't understand why, we begin to have these deep conversations with God. We all face mysteries. And, and what a blessing it is for us to, to remember that there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. That latter days is a key phrase for what we're about to read because this dream, what he's telling Nebuchadnezzar is this dream involves today, but it involves much, much more. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. Verse 29 says, To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So again, Daniel takes no credit in this. Like as Eric brings him in and says, I found this guy. He knows how to do it. You know, Daniel could have easily said, no, no, no. I'm the one that came to you. Don't, don't forget. No, he sat silent. And then as, as he begins to, to tell this interpretation, he makes very clear. He says, listen, there's no person on the face of this earth who can give you what you want. There's, there's nobody who's wise enough, who's smart enough, that's able to, to, to tell you what the dream is and what it means, except a God in heaven. And, and even this verse, such humility when he says, in God, there's nothing special about me. I'm not smarter. I'm not better than anybody else. God just used me as a vehicle. I'm like, I'm the middleman here. So verse 31 begins the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out of no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 36 says, This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You are the head of a gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And, you, and as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, and as you will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those Kings, the gods of heaven, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. 
It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this day. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Verse 46, Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that, all, that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And the king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. It's a lot to dissect, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, this morning I pray that you um, begin to stir in us. Lord, I, I pray as we look at some of the more difficult passages that you, who hold the mysteries, Reveal them to us. God, I pray that you soften our hearts. I pray that you open our ears, open our eyes. I pray that you allow us to, to, to gain maybe a new perspective this morning. That you allow some of this prophecy to maybe change our outlook in life, create new motivation. For us going forward. Lord, I pray that you allow me to be your vessel. I pray that you give me your words, that you give me your thoughts, your heart, your passion. I pray that everything that we say this morning, everything that we do, brings honor, brings glory to you, and it's true your word. We love you and we thank you. In your son's beautiful name, amen. So we have this dream of the king, and the king um, in his dream has this vision of this giant statue. I've tried to, this, today, this one's a little bit different, I think. Um, I'm going to try and make this, um, we have a few slides. You may or may not be able to see them on the, on the TV screens. But I, I, I want us to have a, a, some visualization of what's going on in this scripture and what it's referring to. So, um, so in this, we have this, first one, we have this picture of this, um, this statue that represents Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it's a weird statue if you think about it. And, and, and as we read this, you have different body parts, and each body part is given a, a different substance that it's made out of. Uh, the first one, we see the head is made out of gold. The, the middle part, the chest, the arms is made out of silver. The, the weight, the stomach on the waist is made out of a bronze, and then the, the legs is made out of iron. And towards the ankles and the feet, it talks about the, the iron being mixed with clay. As we consider this statue, um, at first, our first thought, well, we think, well, maybe there's five different kingdoms here, because we see how it's gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron and clay. Um, as we get later on in the book of Daniel, when we get to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel clears up a little bit more of this in another vision that he has. 
This time it's not a vision of another person. This is a vision that God gives to Daniel directly. And as we look at these, as we compare the two, we realize that, that there are four kingdoms, that there are empires that Daniel's talking about and that this dream of Nebuchadnezzar is referring to. And so the first one we see is the Babylonian Empire. And um, obviously Nebuchadnezzar is probably thrilled when he gets word that this first one is in relation to him. Like he's, he's made out of gold, the head of gold, the great, um, the great king that he was. What's interesting is we look at this, and, and, and the, um, the, the, the statue doesn't necessarily tell us that. Um, but, but Gavin, can you back up for one second real quick? When we look at this, that statue there, to give us a breakdown here, so the Babylonian Empire, which represents the gold head, stood from 606 B.C. to 539 B.C. All right? When you get down to the next stage, the uh, silver, which you see there, the Medo-Persian, or some refer to it just strictly as the Persian Empire, that stood from 539 B.C. to 332 B.C. Then the bronze, the, the Greek Empire, stood from 332 B.C. to about 68 B.C., um, somewhere between 168 B.C. and 68 B.C. And then the Roman Empire picks up um, and emerges in 68 B.C. and it kind of continues. And we're going to talk about how that sort of continues. So here's what's interesting, I think. So, so when you get to the next slide, we have a picture of, of kind of the makeup of what the Babylonian Empire was, kind of the territory that they held, the territory that, that they controlled and, and Babylon really becomes the first major world empire of its day. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, um, and if you think of this, as we look at as, as what we're going to see here momentarily, is, is it's also the smallest of the empires. Um, smallest as far as land area, territory that it, that it controls, and also length. But yet it's made out of gold. Um, it's considered to be the most powerful of all the empires. And what you have in, in this Babylonian empire was, was Nebuchadnezzar was a true monarch. Like he held absolute power. It was his word or the how He was in control of everything. And as each of these empires would, would come, there was not that one central monarch type power or authority all of these other empires, you would have this division. You'd have a, a dividing of power. There would be power held within groups. But here we have this Babylonian empire, the king here, this great, powerful Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire. What I think is neat is as we transition over into this, this Persian empire, um, you see how that territory begins to expand. And rather than that one little yellow area, now it's, it's much, much larger. We become familiar with um, a, a gentleman, the King Cyrus. We get through in Daniel. Cyrus is interesting because um, Cyrus was, was mixed. We had one parent who was Persian and one parent who was a Mede. And the result of this was he was able to create this alliance. And what was interesting is as Daniel is given this interpretation to the king, he talks about an inferior empire taking over Babylon. And it was inferior. He was able to create this alliance, though, of the Persians. And these Persians would, would come together and they would conquer Babylon. They're, they were later, they themselves would later be 
and conquered by the Greeks. Um, we see there now the Greek empire expands. It goes all the way up into India. One of the more famous people in history is Alexander the Great. Most of us remember stories of Alexander the Great. You know, it's interesting. Um, history tells us um, Josephus, one of the first century historians, um, in, in, a lot of his, in one of his writings mentioned when Alexander the Great began to conquest, began to conquer the land, when he got to Jerusalem, he was met by the high priest. And check this out. The high priest brings, asked Alexander the Great if he would come to the temple so he could show Alexander the Great how he was in the Bible. And he himself, the high priest, took Alexander the Great to the book of Daniel and showed him this. And because of this, Alexander the Great was overwhelmed thinking and knowing that, wow, I'm in the Bible, that he spared Jerusalem and he gave Jerusalem this great power and he didn't mess with them. Alexander the Great, to me, is uh, uh, an interesting guy that by the age of 29, he had conquered all the known world. How amazing is that? At 29 years old, he conquered all the known world. It's said that after he had conquered everything, he began to cry because there was nothing left for him to do. Uh, his, his life began to spiral because he lost motivation. He lost his focus. He, he died at the age of 33 in a drunken stupor. After he, he ends up dying, the, the empire itself ends up being kind of divided between these four great generals. And these four great generals have their, each, their own little territories, but then two generals kind of rise to the top and reclaim territory. And then you have this kind of battle between these, these two generals, these two lead generals. And so as we consider that statue where, where, where Greece was kind of the, the waist, the, the, the stomach into the thighs, you begin to see towards the end how it splits. And so you have these, these two generals, and they end up fighting. They're trying to take over each other to reclaim this great Greek empire. It's interesting because this, these battles kind of occur, occur during what we um, would consider the silent years, that time frame between the Old Testament and the New Testament. As we get to Daniel chapter 11, Daniel helps fill in some of these, break, some of these blanks, but, but these two generals will battle, and a lot of those battles will, take occur, or will occur in this general area surrounding Jerusalem. And then the final empire that would rise would be that of the Roman Empire. And look how vast this Roman Empire is. The Roman Empire uses that, that the, illustrate, the, the, the metal used to describe the Roman Empire in this dream was iron. Iron at this time was, was the, the hardest known metal of its day. And I, I find it interesting because as Daniel's expressing this idea of iron in verse 40. He says, And there should be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. We know, looking at history, not even our church history, just even secular history, that, that the Roman Empire was known for coming in and destroying, like flexing this great Power and they had this great, tremendous military strength. 
And they would come in, they would conquer, and they did. What's interesting as we get back to this statue is how the legs, there's two legs. And when we consider this, we, we, we need to, to kind of almost view this as the Roman Empire divides. And you have this eastern leg and this western leg. This eastern leg um, or western leg about in 284, Diocletian, they had, Rome had just conquered Mesopotamia. And it had this vast territory, and it was too large for them to manage. And so Diocletian, who was the Roman Empire, divided it into two so it would be more manageable. And so that's where we kind of see these, these legs emerge, an eastern and a western leg. The western leg, eventually um, we have Constantine, who rises to power. And Constantine is so sick and tired of this paganism in Rome that he moves the capital. He moves it to a new city. He renames the city Constant, Constantinople and, and begins to make this, this new, um, new area, this new headquarters of this Roman Empire. Um, in 476 A.D., this western part, this western leg crumbles. But the eastern leg Remains, remains in power until about 1453. In 1453, we see this, um, this eastern portion of the Roman Empire overrun by the Muslims. To me, what's amazing with this is this portion, though, this iron, iron clay mixture continues to today. In Daniel chapter 7, it makes more of a picture, but we, we see when we think of the, the, the feet, ten toes. And these ten toes represent fragments of this Roman Empire. This Roman Empire, although not the big, vast picture that we see there, the, the, the remnants is still alive today. And over history, we've seen where portions, fragments, of this have remained and have risen to some form of power, some form of even world power, although it was not to the magnitude um, and size and scope. Uh, we have seen in history where the Dutch have risen. We've, we've seen where the French have risen several times, the Germans. So these are all parts. To me, this is what's fascinating is you have this King Nebuchadnezzar who gets this dream way back then. And we see the sovereignty of God when God prepares and shows his hand throughout history. I love in earlier in Daniel chapter 2 when Daniel goes back after he talks with Ariok and goes back to meet with his buddy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, guys, we've got to pray. We've got to pray that God gives us the answer, that God gives me what this dream was and what it means. And when he gives him this answer, when God answers Daniel, you guys remember last week we talked about, the, the first thing he does before he goes and tells the king, before he goes and tells anybody, the first thing Daniel does is he goes and he prays to God and he thanks God. Now, in that prayer, in, starting in verse 20, it says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom wisdom and might he changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
Remember, he's, God's the one who, who, who sets up kings and he takes them away. And he, we see this played out through this, this narrative of Gentile history. If you guys remember, I, I mentioned going into Daniel chapter 2, the language in which Daniel was written changes from Hebrew and starting in Daniel chapter 2, going through Daniel chapter 7, it's written in Aramaic. And Aramaic was the language that the Babylonians spoke. But I believe it's key for this. This portion of Scripture is going to be Gentile history. The rest of the Bible, as you look all the rest preceding this and after this, the rest, whenever it talks about history, it's always seen through the lens of Israel, of the Jews, God's chosen people. But this section, Daniel chapter 2 through Daniel chapter 7, it's looked through the lens of the Gentiles. And this, the Gentile empires. So in this dream, you have this, these empires that are built. And then this stone appears. Um, Twice in this passage, it talks about how this stone was not made of human hands. Throughout the Bible, that phrase always refers to something made of God. See, this stone that appears in this dream, and this stone strikes the statue, and the statue crumbles. It falls. I mean, and it just, it doesn't just fall. Like, I mean, it becomes dust, and the wind blows, and there's not a trace of it left. And this rock becomes this mountain, and it overtakes the whole world. That stone that will come is a reference to Jesus Christ. See, we've seen the Babylonian Empire come and go. We've seen the Persian Empire come and go. We've seen the Greek, we've seen the Roman Empire to a great extent come and go. This portion, this rock coming, wasn't talking about the birth of Jesus, but this is a, a reference to Jesus Christ's second coming, coming back again. Um, I personally subscribe to um, a premillennial view, meaning that the rapture will, that Jesus will come, take the church, and the rapture is ushered in afterwards. We can sit down and have several theological debates, and there's several different theories on what that all looks like. Um, one of the reasons that I have a premillennial leaning in my theology is because of this dream here. Notice, the rock comes, destroys everything else, and a new kingdom is built instantly. It's not gradual. Um, Sometimes people want to refer to this rock as the church. Well, the church didn't just come, destroy everything, and then automatically become this big mammoth thing. It was a gradual thing. Jesus Christ comes, and when he comes back a second time, he, he, he raptures the church up to heaven. And then we see this, um, this new kingdom that he creates. This new kingdom will last forever. 
So we sit here this morning and we look at a fascinating dream for some maybe. We, we talk about some history and for some of you, um, especially probably young, you think, okay, so I can listen to this kind of stuff tomorrow in school. What does that mean? What does this mean? To, what can we grasp today? What can we take home with us in reference to this dream, this portion of Scripture? Because I believe this. I believe everything in the Bible is profitable to us today. So what are some things that we can kind of take from this, this dream? What are some, some and maybe some important messages that we can grab a hold of today and apply to our lives? I think the first thing is this. I think it shows us, um, it reveals to us that God is in control of history. Right? God is in control of history. Like, he was the one that allowed this great empire, Babylon. He also was the one that allowed an inferior person. Uh, not only is God shown here to reveal control of history, I, I think this is important. I think it becomes more and more important to us. This dream, I think, reveals to us that human enterprise declines as time goes on. You look at the, the different metals, um, you know, in, in our lifetime, we've seen this even in our own enterprise. Think of companies that have, have risen and fallen in our lifetime. Like, I'm, I still consider myself pretty young. Those days are leaving me. Some of you who are a little bit maybe more mature than I am may have more memories of this. But I remember, when I was a kid, I remember that there was a Woolworths. Anybody remember Woolworths before? Right? I remember in, in, in our, our town there was, a, there was one Woolworths. Um, but into the, like, kids today, like, they have no idea what you're talking about. If you were to mention Woolworths, you have no clue. Right? I think Woolworths started in 1879. Like, and, and they were like the best, they were the, the leaders of, of like store industry back in the day. Like they were the cream of the crop. They had their moment, didn't they? They had their time and they, they lasted for a long time. But, but gradually over time they lost. And today you can't find Woolworths. There's actually, I think it's, I think Foot Locker is actually owned by Woolworths now. Makes no sense, but whatever. Right. What about um, some of these computer companies that we've seen? Right? Remember, um, what was the computer company that had like the cow look? Gate, Gateway or something like that? It was one of those things. It was big for a while. Dell computers were big for a while. See all these different computer companies that will rise up and are popping for a while and they're gone. What about Enron? You guys remember that a few years back? Like, I, I read they had over, I think it was like over 22,000 employees. And supposedly, which is hard to understand because they fell because of accounting records, but they, were, they profited $111 billion. That's a lot of money. There's no end around today. Um, we can think of our, our, a lot of these auto industry companies, how, how they were risen to great fame. Um, they were these stalwarts that they, they had these massive places, but they're nowhere near today what they were before. These countries, these empires that we, we looked at, like they were great, they were mighty one day, at one time. But they're no longer there. Like in our lifetimes, we, we, we've seen that. 
I mean, I, I, as a kid growing up, you know, in the, in the 80s, you know, in the, in the thick of the Cold War, I mean, you remember this, you had this, this picture of this massive, like, Russia. You know, this huge, and like, and today, not that they're not big, but, but that's, our attention's shifted to the Middle East to a great extent. And so we even see in our countries, Gavin and I this morning before church, we were just talking about where America is today, where how much it's changed. We were talking about World War II and that, that great, in that time, um, the great loss, but yet there was this strong, even if you weren't necessarily a Christian, there was a strong moral compass of the country. And then you look at it today and you're like, it's hard to find a compass anywhere. See, this, this change. I think uh, the third thing that we see in this dream is that truth or the third truth is that it will be difficult for things to hold together at the end of the age. My, my belief is this. As we get closer and closer to Christ's return, it will get harder and harder for things to stay together. That's why I believe you see that mixture of the iron and the clay. It weakens it. It crumbles It's no longer durable. It's no longer strong. I think we see that. We see that, we, we see that um, in the governments around the world. We see that in these treaties that are supposed to bind things together, yet somehow it never does. And then the last truth. And the one that I hope gives us hope. The one that I hope um, allows us to find peace in prophecy, the one that allows us to be encouraged through the prophecy is this, that Jesus Christ will return. He will destroy his enemies and he will establish his kingdom. When Jesus came the first time, when Jesus came as a baby in a little manger, you can go in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Let me read it to you. John chapter 3 gives a, paints a great picture of, of Jesus coming. John 3 says, For God so loved the world, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have ever, everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, when Jesus came as a baby, when Jesus came the first time, he came not to destroy the world, but to save the world. Christ's second return, Christ's second coming, the one that we look forward to, that's when Jesus comes. He takes his church, brings him to heaven, and he comes and he destroys his enemies. That's what we have to look forward to. And then he establishes his new kingdom. This, this morning, is, um, is maybe a different message than we are accustomed to here at church. But it's important nonetheless. Beyond the prophecy, going back to the story, going back into the shoes of Daniel, 
He's about to deliver this news to this King Nebuchadnezzar. And in some instances, it's nice to have an answer. But the answer isn't always what we want, is it? Here, he'll deliver the news that, Nebuchadnezzar, you are a great king, and you are the head of gold. That sounds great, until all of a sudden Daniel says, but just so you know, an inferior empire is going to come conquer you. Again, I want to reference back to Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel was so consumed with following God. He was so consumed with doing what he would have him to do that he remained faithful his whole life, even when it meant delivering news that might not be received well. For us today, in our own faith journey, I want us to challenge, I want to challenge us. I want to challenge you, I want to challenge myself. Have I truly purposed in my heart to follow God? What am I pursuing? Is it my own human enterprise? Is it my own vocation? Is it my own well-being? Well, just like that statue one day it'll crumble and fall. I was doing this study, this purpose, the, the, what on earth am I here for with some of our high school students. And I don't remember what day it was, day three or four, I think it was. There was this little illustration, a story about um, James Dobson. A lot of us know James Dobson, focus on the family, radius, like that. And, and you know, he's pretty well known now. He was apparently this big tennis player back in the day. Loved tennis. And he had this, this dream. He wanted to, to win this trophy. He to be, I don't remember if it was a state, whatever it was. But he wanted to win this trophy. And he ends up winning this trophy. And it goes um, in the high school where he's at. You know, proudly displayed in this trophy case. Something to be proud of, right? No doubt he was proud. His parents were proud. I mean, a great accomplishment. He said several years later, he received this box he opens it up, and inside it was this trophy that he had won. And a note, I guess from the custodian, saying he found it in the trash. <laughs> they were remodeling the school. And Dobson makes the point that he realized then that all those accomplishments, all those things, will one day be replaced. And if our desire in life is only to accumulate these things, if that's the legacy in which we're going to leave, it will crumble and fall. Or we can be like Daniel, purpose in our hearts to follow God, to remain faithful to him. And it won't be easy. We're going to see it all throughout this book. Like, it's never easy on Daniel. Like, end of chapter 1, it ends great. Like, remember, he does this thing. He gives up the food. Um, grows, he gets stronger, and the king looks at him, wow, he's ten times better than the rest of my guys. Awesome, you're great. Continue on. Head of the class, boom, awesome, exciting. Yay for Daniel. And it ends good. And all of a sudden, chapter two starts up with the dream. If you can't do what the dream is, you all die. Mm. Not so happy. 
right? Well, we get to this part at the very end here. Now, now it, chapter two ends with this great, like, rah, rah, like everything's awesome. Everything's great. Like, we've told you what the story is. It sounds like Nebuchadnezzar gets it. He's talking about how great God is. We're going to find out fairly soon that he doesn't stay true to that tune. And as that chapter ends on this high note, next week when we start to chapter three, we get this story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who end up getting tossed in the fiery furnace. See, it's not always easy, but God is faithful even in the hard times. We can find hope in those hard times because Jesus Christ is coming back. And for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we don't have to worry about him coming back. We have him right now. So this morning as we wrap things up, I really want us to just consider for a moment Truly understand this, that God is in control. It doesn't matter how chaotic your life is. It doesn't matter how difficult things in, in our city, our country, our world may get. God is always, always, always in control. We never have to doubt that. And let's remain faithful to him. Let's pray. Lord, um, and I, I will be the first to admit that I don't always understand your prophecy and your words. And to a great extent, they are great mystery. But Lord, as we looked at this particular dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, almost, almost 2,700 years ago, to realize that you gave a king a vision then that is still being carried out today is mind-boggling. How comforting it is for us to know that, that nothing takes you by surprise. Like you are always in control. You are the one who establishes the kings. You're the one who builds the empires. And you're the one who allows the empires to crumble. God, I pray that you, you help us today the purpose in our hearts to follow you to follow you in the good times to follow you in the scary times to follow you in the happy times to follow you in the sad times to follow you when, when, when we know what you want us to do and then to follow you in those moments where there's no clarity. Lord, I pray that you just, you work this morning. God, we love you and we thank you. In your son's name that we pray. Amen.